Welcome to Rashers, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the mirthful Eddie Matthews. Welcome, Eddie. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's good to be here. 2021. I'm sure our, our listeners have been away for a couple of weeks. Did anything happen? I uh, you know, haven't turned on the news. I don't know. So we have a new president, I hear. Yeah, yeah I can't think uh, of anything that important that's going on. Is COVID over? Is that still going on? I heard there were somebody uh, it depends on who something. you ask, I guess. <laughs> my god i read that um this is based on one cnn news report so i guess you have to take it with a a little grain of salt depending on who you are but i read that there was no like the biden administration as the the transition was going on and made contact with the trump administration they're like all right like what's the distribution plan that you've come up with like what do we have to kind of work with and there was like nothing I had heard that as well, which is, you know, obviously very troubling, but unsurprising. The I vaccine think. distribution yeah. plan. Yeah. What plan? They're there like, was just not have a plan. <laughs> there was, yeah. It's, it's truly mind boggling. Um, so now, you know, Biden just put out a 200 page report about what he plans to do with the vaccine. Doesn't um, this guy get it? We only read tweets. Come on, 200 pages. <laughs> what is this I nonsense? So what are we talking about today, Morgan? Yeah, so I actually think that's a, a good introduction. I don't know if we have a specific topic, but what I pitched today was essentially to get your thoughts on whether you view this election, the current transition to the Biden administration as a flashpoint in turnout, in terms of turnout, in terms of political engagement, specifically amongst younger generations, or if you see this as the beginning of kind of a sustained relationship between the millennials, Generation Z, and politics in general for the rest of their lives. So one way we can get at this is essentially just looking, I was looking at a lot of the facts about how high turnout had been. It was about the highest of the voting eligible population in 120 years, which is obviously not nothing. That's a crazy uh, stat. It was about two thirds of Americans, which still sounds low, but is actually pretty good for Western countries um, and for America in general. And so I'm-, I'm well, We should clarify by saying yeah. two thirds of eligible voting Americans. Eligible voters, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's basically the highest that is in recorded history. If you go back before 1900, then you get into, I don't know if you've heard of this, but a lot of people couldn't vote back then. So it gets a little, <laughs> gets a little wishy-washy. But um, essentially, this election- Those were the so, good old days, man. <laughs> they were like, who do you want to be president? And the white people were like, wow, that guy seems fine. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, was essentially- The white men were like, we got this. <laughs> One of ours. Yeah. So yeah. since those times, well, uh, this has been a, you know, an incredible amount of turnout. And so we can dig into the facts a bit and, and your thoughts on this. But I-, I do think that just from kind of an anecdotal sense, and this could be biased by who we're talking to and how much news we watch these days, but it does seem like just the amount of entertainment, the amount of just news and the amount of space that politics takes up in the typical American's mind and the typical American's day is so much higher than I've ever seen it. Yeah. And I know it's, it's calmed down. I mean, there's a noticeable difference between this week and last week, right? Like, the Biden administration is doing things at a much different pace and you can kind of feel the anxiety like washing away a bit. And I'm wondering if you think that the engagement our generation has with politics will also wash away or do you think that's here to stay? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. There's a, like a ton to unpack there, I think. Um, I mean, for us, it's washing away because Biden's like a moderate Democrat. And I think at this point, I identify more as a moderate Democrat than a progressive or like I'm some somewhere between maybe moderate and progressive. I guess it depends on um, how you That's the most terms. moderate thing you've ever said. Moderate's always like, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I got one foot in the progressive door. Don't worry. <laughs> right. um, so I, I don't know where you would kind of like identify with that like terminology, but for us, because we have pretty similar, I think, like political views. 
it's starting to wash away and we can kind of breathe again. But I think for a lot of people that don't agree with Biden's policies, they're probably terrified right now because he's signing so many executive orders, you know? So I think it depends probably on who you are in terms of that. But I think collectively it is fair to say that all of us can just take a deep breath that we're not going to have the president of the United States, like occupying a part of our brain, you know, every week for four years. And if that doesn't bring you relief, like, I don't know what will, you know? Well, I do think some people kind of thrive on the political anxiety. Like some people really love that. Like I get sent things all the time. On, 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 both, on both senses. Sides. Yeah, yeah. But not, not, not just both sides, like conservative liberal, but on both sides in terms of like, they thrive on the outrage of it and they thrive on the like, our guys kicking ass. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the news cycle is so, it was so occupied and preoccupied with Trump because people would click on it, right? It was the ultimate clickbait. Trump said this, Trump said that. You're automatically clicking that tweet or liking that button. And so it'll be curious to see. I mean, I think for a lot of people, just like you said, a lot of people are just thrilled to not have to worry about what is going on in Washington for the next four years. People don't need to memorize what Joe Biden's kids' names are. They don't need to know who, who's running his cabinet. Like you can, I think <laughs> uh, there's an expectation that you can get by without necessarily having to know. And that doesn't mean you should, but it means you probably can. And I think that's thrilling in a way, but also it could be worrying, it could be puzzling. It depends on how you see the future. But like you said, when we were building up this conversation, it could also be seen as a good thing. Like one of the signs of a health of a democracy is actually sometimes viewed as the percent of vote. Turnout can also be seen as a good thing. If turnout is low, a lot of people say, well, that's because people genuinely think things are going fine and they don't necessarily see a difference between the two parties. They don't necessarily see one of the parties as representing a threat to the democracy itself. And so it's not necessarily a one-for-one -one trade off, but I do think that there's definitely been a palpable shift just in this one week alone. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I guess to go back to your original question, um, not that either of us are necessarily like qualified to prognosticate about <laughs> what you know this, this point in history is gonna be, but I think it is uh, you know, a good thing to think about as we think about our own kind of individual participation in this whole system. And then just the kind of perception of the generations. Um, so I think to take a stab at your initial question, um, it, I guess it depends. So I think Biden is going to prove to be a boring, moderate, middle of the road politician in the way that George W. Bush was, in the way that... Um, that Obama was, but without the charisma and without the, um, I don't know, I, I think just the kind of spotlight on obviously Obama being the, the first black president, there's so much kind of just like history and energy there. Um, so I think that there's not going to be excitement surrounding Biden throughout his whole four years or, you know, his reelection campaign. I think there's, um, so I think the energy around the personalities is gonna go down, if that makes sense. I hope that Trump doesn't become the Republican nominee in 2024, but we don't know kind of what's gonna happen there with the articles of impeachment going to the Senate floor on Monday. Um, we're recording this on Saturday, like two days before that happens. So we don't know what the future of Trump in politics is gonna be. Maybe he forms his own third party and then that kind of splits the vote in 2024, who knows? But um, I guess if, if, I, if I had to bet, I would say that Trump is not the Republican nominee in 2024. And then it's not Ted Cruz either, but somebody a little bit more clear headed than either of those two. And so I think you're gonna have hopefully like a return to more establishment political figures in each of the parties. And I think that's going to draw away some of the energy around the like cult of personality that's kind of taken over. Um, I would say each party, but you know, I think it took over for uh, Democrats for Obama's tenure because he was such a just magnetic, you know, charismatic personality. Um, 
but clearly there's no cult of personality surrounding Biden. I mean, I, that's clear to me. Um, and the cult of personality didn't win out in that primary process or else we wouldn't have chose Biden. And so um, I think that will draw away some of the energy, which will be a really good thing. Cause, but I think the energy will remain on like niches of people who care a lot about one issue. So niches of Republicans who care undyingly about abortion and niches of Democrats who care about um, bringing Firefly like back police on the reform. Air. <laughs> what? Police re- bringing Firefly back on the air or police reform. Fine. Sure enough. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a niche uh, reference there. Yeah. So I think that, I don't know. So as far as like collectively how that looks, I, I, yeah, I think it's going to go kind of away from the the people at the top and the kind of cult of personalities and go more towards like issue based stuff. And I don't know how that's going to like affect the dynamic of both parties and what the coalitions are going to look like, but that's kind of my, my best guess. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think you, you got it. Part of it with Biden specifically, it's very, interesting that you know he'll always be tied in his legacy to Obama because they were running mates where they maybe not explicitly run on ran on the basically diametrically opposed platforms but in terms of Obama's message of change while Biden didn't state this but it was basically like return to normalcy could have been his tagline uh, you know I'm boring and that's fine you know these are all acceptable taglines that are essentially what he was pitching um, and I, I do think that's really interesting. I do think it will be tough for the Democrats to get people to turn out for things like the midterm elections if there's not an opposing figure like Trump who people can kind of draw from personally. He's a personalistic leader, doesn't necessarily have to be attractive. It can be detractive. Like a lot of people turned out in this election to vote against Trump, not to vote for Biden. I would say maybe even the majority of Democrats or people who voted Democrat did so. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I do think there's a couple, there's, there's the physical machinations and, and the kind of mental philosoph- or mental and um, psychological machinations. Routin- like voting is a routinized behavior, right? If you are registered and you're used every, you know, Tuesday, every other year going and voting during the day and you have your spot where you know you can go vote, blah, 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 blah. It's much easier then if you have never voted before, you need to fill out the card, you need to find a place to go. And so in places like Georgia, where you know hundreds of people, thousands of people were registered for the first time, especially this youngest generation who, as soon as they became voting age, felt like they had a voice. I do think a lot of that will carry over. Um, and that's not just necessarily on the Democrat side. Some people you know, maybe disaffected white voters in West Virginia or a lot of other places in Appalachians and other areas will also are now registered and also now know that you know their vote counts and that they've they've done it before and that does make a big difference. The number one predictor of future voting turnout is past voting behavior, which is unsurprising, but definitely something that gets overlooked sometimes. In terms of the psychological side, I think you're right. I think it'll be, it'll die down. But I do think we've just shifted American culture in such a way where like late night shows and television shows and movies, they all speak to politics now where even like it's hard to make a piece of entertainment that doesn't have some subtext of American politics in in the U.S. and will that completely fade away? I think it will go down but I don't think it'll ever go back to you know pre-2016 levels at least not in the next decade or so. Yeah that is really really interesting because it almost like so much of pop culture is getting seen through a political lens and so that even if you're not making a political statement, people will be like, oh, Taylor Swift, what? Oh, she's not taking a side? Oh, that means she, you know, so like they'll interpret apolitical stances as polit- politically. And sometimes there's merit to that and sometimes there isn't, you know, like if, if it's the height of the George Floyd protests and you're putting All Lives Matter on your, you know, like storefront that's not an apolitical statement but if you're taylor swift and you're coming out with an album you're just coming out with an album like you shouldn't have to like put your voter registration id with it you know um so that is kind of really interesting as far as like the late night talk shows i don't really know how much of like a cultural imprint those have anymore um 
that's not to say they're negligible certainly because a lot of people watch them I mean, millions of people watch them collectively for the different shows um but it's not like you know when johnny carson or even jay leno or you know when those guys were on the air there's not like the monoculture surrounding those but it will be really interesting to see like how all those which aside from jimmy fallon and conan essentially kind of became lightly politicized or sometimes heavily politicized entertainment shows uh, over the last four years so it'll be interesting to see like what direction those go and like what materials Stephen Colbert is going to draw upon now um I think that yeah I mean I hope that it doesn't become more politicized in terms of I think that art like art should speak to what's going on in the culture and influence that but it shouldn't be motivated by like enacting a certain policy. Like it becomes more propaganda than it does art. If it's very clear what that writer or artist or musicians um, like agenda is and putting in, that's not to say that, you know, um, if I listen to Patti Smith, it's pretty obvious like what she would, whom, whom she would support in politics, but I don't want to listen to Patti Smith songs that are like used on Bernie Sanders campaigns, you know, and like talking about uh, Medicare for all, you know, like that there should be some sort of separation there. And I think there is, and I think there will continue to be. So I don't, I hope there's not like an erosion between those spheres, but there is certainly an overlap in the sense of you're always kind of like trying to put something relevant into the world, you know? You've been warned, Patty Smith. Don't be making any more. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's not just the artist side. Like I feel like as you know, I'm not I'm not an artist, but you write you write stories, you write books, you're more in this field than I am. I am an artist. <laughs> I, I am the artist. <laughs> I feel like for a lot of artists out there, there was a sense of like guilt if they were writing stories or producing things that didn't touch on or talk to this specific moment in time, right? I think it was actually difficult to pitch something in the last four years that didn't directly or indirectly address some of the things going on in the United States. And you see this with the, with the shows, you know, there's more probably Nazi shows in the last four years than there were in the last like 30. Like it was like very on the nose. They're like, well, we can get this published now. Here we go. And then people are like, oh, what are they, what could they be talking about? You know, so not necessarily subtle all the time. And there were definitely some very bad pieces of art that came out of it. Uh, but I do think now, not just on the, kind of supply side, but on the demand side, I feel like listeners and viewers and purveyors of art are going to have a much easier time reaching out and saying, oh, I like this song. And people, you know, why'd you like it? Well, I just really liked that song. You know, it had a great jam and tune. It didn't necessarily speak to the moment, but I think there's that guilt that you would have had in watching or saying, you really need to check out this movie when it was just about, you know, the Teletubbies or something would be so much less than it would have been four years ago. Um, but I think I want to jump back to a point you made a second ago where you talked about the, the monoculture and how over time, you know, these specific, you know, social and online institutions or at least television institutions have become less pertinent in society. I think that's true. But I also think when we're talking about this social inertia and social momentum, these online communities that rose up in these years around Trump, around things like QAnon and anti-vax, I think just in the opposite direction, it's going to be very, very difficult. For those things to disappear, right? It's not just that people have invested time. Right? People have been talking about QAnon lately because it essentially fell apart, right? It was a, it was like a falsifiable movement that said something was going to happen and Trump was never going to lose power, and now he has. But the movement, maybe some people will fray and it will fracture slightly. But they, I mean, these people have spent so much time and now have like their social culture is other people in this movement. It's like the flat earthers or people like that. Like if you if your friends are all in this group it's very difficult to be like, all right, what are we just going to like support the Charlotte Hornets now? Like, as long as we can still hang out, like, no, we're going to stay as QAnon people and believe till the end, even if we're not as fervent, the communities themselves and the social connections that have been made, it doesn't always have to be bad either. Like this could be great democratic active, uh, activists or you know, Republican centrists who just want to respect the constitution or whatever. But when you build a tight knit group of community online or in person, it's been shown that those things tend to persist regardless of what happens in the real world. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it would be relevant to bring up your disinformation grant funded work over the last few months. Do you have any, which we've mentioned a little bit before on the pod, but do you have any like results or any uh, kind of insights that you can share preliminarily from that research that you were able to kind of, you know, put a piece of disinformation or track a piece of disinformation and see where it went and see how effective it was or anything? Yeah, I mean, pertinently for this, let me think of what would be the most helpful. A lot of, I think the most interesting finding that has come out of it has had to do with repeat offenders, which is what we call basically the, the like central nodes in these networks that spread pieces of misinformation. And I think there's a couple of interesting things about them. So there's a couple of surprising things. Some of them are that there's a very small group. There's about 30 people or organizations on Twitter that spread like 95% of the misinformation, or at least are used as the central point for spreading a specific piece of misinformation to the largest audience. And so it's actually not that many people that are involved in this, but those people are reaping the benefits and playing a very crucial role. And it's not always misinformation that they're spreading, right? It's just kind of distrust or support for a certain party or a certain candidate or um, you know political information that supports a certain side. And I think that their prominence that's kind of arisen during this period is unlikely to completely fade away. They, you know, it's, it might seem simple to follow someone on Twitter or to like something on Facebook and to check that page. But once you've done it, it's even more difficult to kind of go back and take them out. Like how often do you go into Facebook and you're like, oh, I don't talk to this person. I'm gonna go through and quell people from my Facebook friends list. It's just annoying and you're not gonna do it. So these people are now, you know, on these sites, talking to these people, people have a routine that they go and check these sites in the morning, they check them over their coffee. And I don't expect that to disappear. Whether they'll be coordinated in something as, you know, uh, polarizing as Trump, where they kind of all have a specific goal, and they're saying, we're trying to get this person elected, we're going to spread information that we think supports this, I don't know. It could be that there isn't necessarily as central figure. And so we get more splintering with Fox News and these different types of right-wing sites. I think that's probably the most likely and also probably the best outcome, um, but who knows? I mean, like we said, we're not prognosticators, uh, but we have a podcast, so we're allowed to do it. Free <laughs> we do have a podcast. <laughs> and just real quick, you're part of a team of how big is your team and how many like universities are involved? And so two universities and a couple private partners. And overall, there's a lot of undergrads at Stanford who contribute. I think there's probably like, you know, 70 people at least involved oh, wow. overall. Wow. Um, yeah, at the University of Washington, there's about 15, um, probably more than that, actually, probably like 20 people who had direct hand in doing some of the work. Um, and we're still, we're still doing it. We can have a podcast later on when we finally uh, get everything sorted. Right now, we're trying to work on correcting for survivor bias. Um, essentially, like a lot of these articles and news, you'll see, you know, you hear about QAnon, you hear about misinformation related to Trump that makes it all the way to the top, but you don't necessarily hear about the pieces of misinformation that didn't get shared or were falsifiable or never made it to one of these repeat offender accounts. And so it's tough to say what makes misinformation succeed if you don't know what mis makes misinformation fail. And so we're trying to put together kind of a robust control so we can say what differentiates these really successful mis pieces of misinformation is rather unsuccessful. Is it just pure luck? Is it like somebody logged on Twitter one day and is like, oh, that's interesting. And then they shared and their followers shared. Or is it something more, you know, fundamental to that piece of misinformation? Um, so that's kind of what we're working on now. No, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I don't know, like just from the higher ed side, teaching my students how to differentiate between misinformation and, and good information is I don't know, it's a conversation I've had with my colleagues recently, and uh, it's a really, really, really <laughs> difficult task that none of us, you know, like, you know, at our little institution of Point Loma, um, each of us in our disciplines can do like a little bit of it, but we truly, really have to work together to comprehensively provide an education for each individual student where they're going to get like a similar like strategy for for filtering out good information from bad information. And then also doing that in a way that is not politicized or is not perceived to be politicized either. It's just like, it's it's more based in civics than in politics. 
will be it's a formidable task that we have but i think it's like the, the most important thing that those of us the like what you're researching to me even though i'm in the you know entirely different discipline is the most it's number one like it's the most important thing that we need to impart to our students right now yeah i mean it's fascinating because it's so obvious i think to a lot of people but also so hard to get across if you read any article on like how to fix misinformation, there's almost guaranteed to be a section that's like, we need to fix civics education and teach people at a young age to differentiate between fact and fiction. It's like, okay, sure. Like that's one thing to say it, but are we actually changing curriculums? And like, are we testing these things to see what works and doesn't work? And are we actually gonna out compete motivated reasoning? Um, and I think that's a lot more difficult, um, but I think it's something that people are working on and there are programs and just scaling that up will be something really important. It would be nice to see the Biden administration invest in something like that, because I think even from a nonpartisan standpoint, people can get behind bringing us back to some sort of common understanding of truth and fact and fiction and you know what exactly we can agree on in, in the US. But um, I, have a, I have a quick question about the last thing you said. You said from a higher ed perspective. Is that what you've started calling yourself now that weed is legal in California? Or is that? Uh... <laughs> yeah, by higher ed, I mean high as a kite ed, <laughs> which is what they've been calling me these days. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but I guess <laughs> can't, can't blame them for that. Yeah. I, um, if, you, if you were to draw a connection between that type of so again, the definition to my understanding of disinformation is, is people who are willfully putting out lies and perpetuating those to, uh, for whatever motive that they have, which I'm sure are many. Um, and then misinformation is doing that like unintentionally, right? Like, so you actually think that this is true, but you're perpetuating it. And, yeah. Um, what, um, if you were to draw a connection between those kind of like bad actors or the disinformation campaign or just like your studies of how this information circulates and com creates communities that then concretize over time and and you know sustain themselves online do you so when you saw the capital riots what was that in your head where you're like oh wow like these people are more than likely embedded in these type of disinformation communities and have just been manipulated into thinking this or or how did that um, strike you? Yeah, I mean, I think if that's the, the parallel you want to draw is like misinformation versus disinformation, I absolutely agree. I mean, I'm sure there were some, absolutely some bad actors there who didn't believe it, but we're just trying to, you know, take advantage of the opportunity presented by having all these people there. But I think the vast majority of people did believe that, you know, there's some cabal or the election had well, been stolen. I guess um, I would I guess I would draw that distinction between the organizers and the people that actually stormed on the Capitol. So Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump and all of the official people connected with this administration knew it was bullshit and they continue to know it's bullshit. But they are the ones with the they're the disinformers. And then I we can't speak to every single person that stormed the Capitol, but it seemed to me like those people legitimately believed. It, you know like they were misinformed and obviously that doesn't absolve them at all of coming to dc and then storming the capital but like it i guess that that's where i would have just drawn that distinction between the people who put on that rally and then the people who went from that rally into the capital at the behest of the the disinformants as it were yeah i mean it's it's a difficult question in that, like, where does someone's responsibility lie if they've been lied to and they actually believe, you know, a certain thing is happening? Um, if you can, you know, scale it down to something less um, grandiose, if, if you believe that, you know, someone means harm to someone in your family and you react violently, and then it turns out it wasn't, you would still get in trouble, but I think people would have more sympathy in that case. And I, I do think it needs to be seen that way where like these people have been lied to. I think the reason we need to separate it is because the solutions are different, right? If it was just lots of people who were taking advantage of these situations to try to do something nefarious, then the solution would be like 
you know, get rid of these individual people, target them and get rid of them. If it's because they've been strategically misinformed, then you need to target the misinformation and you need to make it so people can better differentiate. Like we've been talking about, people have a wider variety of information to draw from to make, you know, honest conclusions and more accurate assessments of facts. Um, and so I think that's why it's important. And so that's a, that's a good distinction that you're making. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's worth saying that, like, it means the Republican Party has to, like, get rid of some cowards. <laughs> uh, obviously, the Republican Party is not terribly good at doing that, but let's hope soon <laughs> they'll get better at it. It's tough. I mean, it's it's tough because of the way that the system is set up where the challengers to a lot of these Republicans are like further right people. In we now have districts. a QAnon, yeah. a QAnon believer in the house. I mean, it's the same thing. Democrats have the same problem, but to less a degree, like if you're competing in a heavily Republican or heavily democratic district, we've talked about this before, yeah. your biggest competitor in a first past the post system is like the person further to the left or further to the right of you. It's not the Democrat. Like the Democrat is never going to win in like thousands or yeah. you know hundreds of in these, Kentucky yeah in these districts so there's no reason to ever pivot center because that's not your competition and so that that makes it really tough um, and trying to come up with actual you know congressional reform in that manner requires bipartisanship that's I mean usually you would say would require some sort of crisis so maybe that this was that maybe this was the crisis what's hope that could inspire some people to come together and be like look we need actual reform um, and I mean, it seems unlikely still because of the polarization and the individual self-interest on behalf of a lot of people in Congress. But yeah, I think it's, we're closer to dramatic reform today than we were three weeks ago. Was it worth it? Probably not, but if it comes about, then that would be one benefit. Um, and hopefully we can get some silver lining. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess for me, it's like, it comes back to language and why language is so important because um, we talk about ideas and try to communicate and try to share our worldviews and try to like come to an understanding through language and through talking about these ideas so that violence doesn't have to occur for us to like realize, oh, wow, like the maybe the police does have a little too much uh, freedom and leeway to treat people uh, however they want, you know? Like it shouldn't have to come to somebody getting shot for us to like, that should be in the ideal realm. You know, we should be like, what are the boundaries? What? Are, how can these apply to situations? Whatever, you know, like it shouldn't have to take the cap of the US Capitol, like the, the, the center of our democracy being raided for us to be like, oh, maybe it's not such a good idea for the majority uh, caucus of one of the two major parties in this country to, um, you know, say that a free and fair election was not free and fair and was stolen. Like, I don't, so I think over the next four years, there's going to be, I hope, a, a, redemp a redemption of actual language and a redemption of like the precision of language. And I hope that that has like knock-on effects for the, just the use of rhetoric in, in the House and the Senate. And then just between each other as we're talking about politics, like we can realize that the way that we talk about these issues and like the words that we use and the people that we listen to, like, and the language they use is all really reverentially, deeply important, you know? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's there's a prominent view of, of history that sees moments in time as inflection points that determine the future, rather than a continual kind of butterfly effect, you know, view that every single action takes you slightly further one way or another. Uh, the view is that there are moments in time where society and you know global um, history is made and can shift dramatically one way or the other. And I think if you view it from that 
perspective, this was certainly one of those times. Um, and if it took a trip to the precipice to change things for the better, that'd be great. Uh, if we didn't teeter over into the abyss, but it does act as a warning, kind of getting back to what we originally were talking about in this episode, that these types of things can happen. And I, I don't think that people will completely forget how close our democracy was to breaking under the stress. Um, but I hope that we start to forget and that 20 years from now, we see this as a footnote and not you know, a chapter or the start of a whole entire new book. I mean, unless it's, it's for the better and we see this as a, a breaking point with some of the sclerotic institutions in the US. Um, but I, I, I think this was one of the, I, we talked about it before, one of the most consequential elections in American history, if not global history, and it went the right way. It didn't, uh, probably the post-election stuff wasn't necessarily what we were thinking about when we said that, but it just goes to show how close we were. I think for all the people saying, oh, that's, you're overreacting, it's only gone to show how crucial that election actually was. And hopefully we can move forward from there while still remembering this is how close we were um, and not, not ever forgetting that. It's truly terrifying to think about a second Trump administration when he has no re-election on the horizon that he had to like temper, you know, his, his worst instincts, let's say, even though he didn't really temper his worst instincts, but like, oh man, yeah, it's not even worth getting into. It's, it's a, it is a terrifying notion, but well, let me ask you this, I guess, do you think that um, it would be a good thing if attention and part I don't want to say participation because I think that connotes like voting but let's say just like between election attention uh if that goes down in politics over the next you know generation do you think that will be like a, a positive good thing for American society I would say it would be a good sign, but a bad thing, if that makes sense. Like if I had to look in the future and you said, would you rather have you know, participation gone down or up? I would say, I'd probably say down because that would be, it would mean that things went relatively back to normal and there was less polarization and people cared less about the outcome. Do I actually want that to happen from an individual to individual perspective? No, I want people to be as engaged as possible in the hopes that this energy, now that there is less of a personalistic factor, won't be directed at a person or an ideology, but actual policies. Like that's the best way I can see it. If we all harness all the attention and the time we're spending on American politics to look at what are the actual benefits of universal basic income? Can we actually you know, revamp the healthcare system in an effective way? What are the pros and cons of particular um, policies? Then that'll be fantastic. I mean, I think that's some way of actually producing change that's informed and um, remarked upon by larger society. Is that optimistic? Probably, but I don't think that it's out of the realm of possibility now that we have so many people, especially younger people, who at least understand how important and consequential politics is. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, I guess it, maybe that's the way forward reframing it away from personalities and you know kind of political figures and onto policies and issues um i think that would be good but even those aren't separate spheres though like if you actually listen to alexandria ocasio-cortez she is very policy issue driven like she can talk very specifically about unions in the Bronx right like I think people equate her cult of personality with a Trump or with you know whomever uh, like a Matt Gates or who whatever like right-wing conservative uh, person you want to throw in there and I think those are totally different in the sense of like her there is culture personality around Ocasio-Cortez but it does overlap with like a sincere care about climate change and a sincere care about, you know, the progressive issues that she advocates for. Whereas I think that 
the identity politics on the right becomes more just about like, I like tailgating, college football, meat, beer, and Trump. <laughs> and you're like, okay, wh what do you think about uh, tr unions in the Bronx? And they're like, why would I care about that? <laughs> you know? And the, I guess that I don't think that we can separate those, I guess. Like, I think that is optimistic and that is good. And I hope that there is more like attention put on these issues, but I guess I'm afraid that just more like newer and charismatic people will like then take the stage once the stage has been vacated by Obama and Trump and whomever, you know, you kind of want to, this generation of, of people who are taking up the stage. I agree. There's definitely a, a personalistic component to, I think both sides. I mean, I think the key difference is when you look at attacks on AOC, I do think you see a lot of them that are just baseless attacks on AOC, whether it's because she was a bartender or because she's a woman or because she's a minority. You see a lot of that, obviously. But I also do think I've seen a lot of people be like, this policy specifically is dumb for this reason. And that I can get behind, even if I would like it to be framed in a more constructive way. If we're attacking yeah. people for their policies, that's what politicians are there for. Like you can pitch policies, even your favorite politician, if you agree with one person's policies, all of their policies, that's not good. You should never agree with a single person's every single policy. That's a bad sign. So you should be able to look at even people on your side and say, ah, I disagree with this specific policy, or at least I would like to hear more about this because I'm worried about this or that or some other thing. I think at the moment, even on the left, if you disagree with something that Bernie says because of you know financial reasons or whatever, they can, you know, you can definitely get backlash and say that, oh, you're not liberal enough or you support the other side. If we can get away from that and the first you know, response or the vitriol coming at you is like, oh, well, I think your critique is over unfounded or I think you're overstating the consequences of this, that would be terrific. And I don't think that is too far-fetched. I think without Trump in the picture, we're closer to that vision than we have been in a while, actually, since before Trump, because of the renewed interest in actual policies. Um, so that's my, my optimistic take, but. Yeah, no, I like, I like that optimistic. And I, I guess what kind of drives me crazy about the left, you know, or side of the house is how much focus is put on identity politics and not on issues. And so like, for instance, did you know that Kamala Harris, you know, first uh, woman vice president, I don't know, her, but go on. <laughs> first woman vice president, <laughs> uh, first first black woman vice president, which is great. First Asian American woman who's vice president is great. Also, uh, first fifty six year old vice president, which is great. First vice president from Oakland, California. First Oaklandite vice president. I feel like I've heard this for every cabinet member. First that stepmother, <laughs> first stepmother, vice president. Big coalition, right? Um, first, um, first vice, I'm just, it's just like, he's going on and on. We're just placating like, okay, to like, the, the stepmother yeah. caucus. Yeah. I know. It's like, when are we going to like stop? All right. Can we talk about like what Kamala Harris is like past and history and like record and what she stood for and like what she cares about and like what she's going to bring to the office, you know? And that's not to say that representation doesn't matter. Like it does, but we have we can, to, be, we can have both. We can appreciate representation yeah, while also but we can also criticize. Absolutely. Yeah, like yeah. So I think like yeah, I don't know. It makes it hard, and I get their frustration. I think on the right, where it's like, no, I can criticize this black politician and not be racist, you know, or whatever, or this gay politician and not be homophobic. Um. So I think that these kind of like purity codes that we have on the left. I don't know how to eradicate those, but it's gonna be pretty difficult, I think. Even Obama's like, stop like making these purity cuts for people being woke enough. He's like, like if, stop if Obama wasn't stuff. Obama, he would definitely not be woke. People- <laughs> <laughs> No, I know. I just like, yeah. I don't know. Obama said, uh, just- he's a, he's a centrist politician. <laughs> but I know, just, um, yeah, so I, 
Yeah. I, I mean, I think the magnitude, I think the magnitude of these problems just makes me want to shut off from like politics altogether. Like, uh, so my, my own like participating in politics, like I don't really have a ton of interest in like continuing now that Trump's era is over for me, I'm kind of just like, I think I'm going to check out for a while, you know, so watch I'd, some sports, grab a Bruce. No, I'm and... just like, I'm not saying that that's a good thing because it means that Mitch McConnell won, but I'm just like, ah, oh, I can't fight Mitch McConnell anymore. I just like the hate that he arises in me. I don't like that. I don't like the hate. You know? For listeners out there, Eddie has pitched a follow-up to the Mitch McConnell episode like six times. <laughs> I've had to talk him on the ledge. <laughs> I, I just like, um, if you want to encapsulate Mitch McConnell, it's on Martin Luther King Day, him sending a tweet, just extolling the virtues of Martin Luther King. And then Charles Booker, the... Um, person who lost in the primary to Amy McGrath in the Kentucky, you know, center race who Amy McGrath eventually lost to McConnell. Um, he tweeted, this is the man who's blocking the John Lewis voting rights act right now. So it's just like that kind of stuff makes me want and makes a lot of people want to that. That's why people hate Washington. And that's why people like um, just the, that's what makes people want to check out, I think. And so I guess I don't know. I guess I don't necessarily see the, like the, and maybe this is the answer. It's like the day-to-day attention should go down and the, but the turnout in elections should not go down. And I guess that's what I hope for is that the less um, that we can just pay less attention on like the day-to-day kind of like news cycle, but then educate ourselves before we go to the voting booth every two years. And I guess that's my hope. Uh, yeah, we can talk about this in another episode, but I think it's, it's an interesting kind of, you get a, this downward spiral in certain types of democracies that is a real problem that we need to work on where the more dysfunctional it becomes, the less likely people are to hold politicians accountable or following through on things. If they think, if they get to the point where they think all politicians are basically bullshitting and they can't deliver, I'm just yeah. gonna go with the people who are either saying the things that I agree with in my heart yeah. that don't yeah. have any you know, reflection on what they can actually do, or I'm gonna right. go with the people who are over-promising the most that they can't right. actually deliver. And then it's when they don't deliver again because they can't deliver on these outrageous promises. Right. And it's even more disorienting. And so- It's like, it's like when I asked my dad over Christmas, uh, so, you know, Trump said he was going to bring all these American jobs like back to the country. Like, have you looked into that? Has he done it? He's like, well, I assume so. He said it. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, that is a huge problem in, in what you're saying, right? Because if you're not plugged into this kind of, if you're not following it day to day, week to week, you don't really know what's going on. You don't really know if they are delivering on these promises. So, I mean, it is a really good, it is a, it is a really good point. I guess I, I still think that before you went to the voting booth, if there was a way, I don't know, like on the community level to really encourage people to be like, go look up their promises and like check, like go read as much as you can. Yeah. Even if it takes a few, just a few hours before you go to the voting booth. Well, I think it, the, the problem we're getting at, it gets back to the beginning and we can close it after this and uh, yeah. always welcome to listen to people write in and have us talk about some of these issues again in the future. But I think if, if politics becomes your life and it becomes your identity, it's very difficult to criticize your own side and to get into the specifics of certain policies rather than politicians and political parties. If you're interested in politics and it's not your whole life, but it is something you care a lot about, you care about you know, the institutions or your city or your family or whatever, and politics is one way of expressing that, and you can do so in a way that's not tied to your personal identity. And because things are so polarized, I think people don't see themselves as, you know, Democrats in the like low, small D sense, is in their members of a democracy. They see themselves as, you know, large D Democrats or large R Republicans. And when that's true for so many people, it becomes really difficult to talk about the minutiae on each side. And so let's hope that the greater interest that we've seen over the last four years 
does not become focused on distilling the virtues of one side over the other, but focused on how we can improve America. And this, I'm sounding like Biden right now, but I think uh, there's some wisdom in the like nonsensical middle ground that he's espousing. Um, but in that we need to do this for every specific policy and talk about the pros and cons rather than focusing on politics as a whole. Yeah, I think that sounds great. Nailed it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I have a lot of sympathy for Biden espousing that message and for that being the message. I obviously like support that. And I also have a lot of sympathy for people who are like, what world is this guy living yeah, in? Yeah. Where he no, no doubt. Thinks that that's possible right now. I don't well, know. maybe we can lead by example. If, if anyone, I would love to debate like a, a, like a cutting edge, maybe like a few radical policies that have been thrown out in the last couple of years as ways of you know, altering American politics for the better and kind of digging into what is actually good and bad about those policies. Because I think Andrew Yang is the best. He just throws stuff up there. And I'm like, that's a terrible policy, but I love it. Like the fact that we're even <laughs> considering that is amazing. And then sometimes I'm like, that seems like a great policy. So I would, I would love to dig into that. If anyone has any specific policies um, that we've brought up, I, I would love to hear from you. I would love, uh, I would love for someone to come on and debate like radically diminishing the size of government, like actual, like conservative, you know, be like, no, let's cut. We need to take 75%. three floors off of the Capitol building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be interesting to me. I would love for, a conservative person to come on and tell us how a working class American can get health, should get healthcare. And I would, yeah, but it doesn't. Yeah. So it's not our podcast. Who's wrong. It's the listener. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just, um, it's hard to find those people, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and if anyone can um, reach out to Andrew Yang's people, we'd love to have him on, of course. We would, uh, we're always, we're part of the Yang gang for sure. We, we're huge fans. So definitely give him a call. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. We solved it, right? All you we tens solved of America. thousands. <laughs> I was, yeah. I, I think I'm glad. I know we, I'm actually glad that we, we actually don't talk about American politics. I mean, we talk about it a lot, but we don't talk about it like, every time and that's kind of nice that is nice i feel like what we should hopefully just like we're talking about we'll talk about it less and less as time goes on and we can talk about specific policies here and there but uh until next time folks rational listeners